0: Uh, We're going to be talking about the rapture today And uh, for those of you who don't know, we've been doing a uh, documentary on that for the last several months Still not done, but getting close, hopefully to release on November 1st And uh, so basically, it's on the timeline now It's looking like it's going to be about 14 hours uh, worth of information on this topic From every different gamut, every different position Just let's see what the scripture says and you can make up your own mind So uh, we're going to try to uh, compress a little bit today Amen. All right. Check this out. Here it comes. Another heaven joke. And guess who the guy's going to meet in heaven? St. Peter. Peter. It's always Peter. So just roll with it. I don't know why. But anyway, so this guy passes away, right? And he goes to heaven. And upon getting into pearly gates, who do you see, Bobby? St. Peter. That's right. And so St. Peter says, hey, hey, come on in, man. I'm going to show you around. You're going to like it here. Hope so. Uh, Anyway, so, so the man walks in through the gates there. And the first thing he knows was clocks. I mean there were clocks everywhere there were grandfather clocks there were wall clocks there was watches there was clocks in every single corner Every single one of them taken away at different rates and each one of them had a name engraved on them. So the man obviously asked peter said, what's the deal with all these clocks? And so peter, you know, he said well, hey the clocks they keep track of things back on earth And there's one clock for every single person and every time a person on the earth lies The hands on the clock make a complete revolution And so they go, oh, okay so he points to a certain clock. He goes, well, who's, whose clock is that? And St. Peter said, well, that's Franklin Graham's. Okay, the hands on his clock only moved one time. Told He's only told a lie one time in his whole life. And so the guy says, whoa, that's incredible. Well, whose clock is that one over there? And so St. Peter said, well, that's Abraham Lincoln's clock. The hands on his clock only moved twice, uh, indicating that he only, Abe told only two lies in his entire lifetime. And so the man obviously asked the obvious question, well, where's Hillary Clinton's clock? <laughs> I had to do it. <laughs> All right, it's a timing issue. So he goes, well, hey, where's Hillary Clinton's clock? And Peter goes, oh, <laughs> her clock. Well, we moved it into the office, and we're using it for a ceiling fan. <laughs> oh, there's only so many times you can use those jokes, and today was that day. Uh, But you guys know it's true, right? It's true. God knows when people lie, right? He knows everything, okay? But apparently not only do some people tell big lies and a whole bunch of them, Uh, but believe it or not, there's another big lie out there that's causing a lot of confusion in the church today, and it's this one. People are saying this all the time for some reason lately. They say, there's not one verse, there's not one verse in the Bible that supports the pre-trib position of the rapture. What? Really? How fast is your clock spinning anyway? Okay, And folks, believe it or not, there's a whole new fan club of people out there who not only disagree with the pre-trib position of the rapture. but uh, And again, if you're not familiar, that means that the church leaves prior or pre to the seven-year tribulation. But they actually say there is zero biblical proof of that position at all. And and it's crazy, folks, because it's all over the scripture, Old and New Testament. And that's what we're going to deal with today. The first way we know, folks, that the church is raptured prior to the seven-year tribulation is when you go back to the beginning. The purpose of the seven-year tribulation, it has nothing to do with the church. But again, as always, don't take my word for it. Let's listen to God's. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, we're going to take a look at why we have a seven-year tribulation. Where did it come from in the first place? And does it really have anything to do with you and I, the church? But Daniel chapter 9, let's take a look there. And Daniel, of course, was written by Daniel. You guys are doing good. Uh, yeah. and uh, we're going to take a look at starting verse 20 the 77s. Why do we have a seven-year tribulation? Uh, where did it all start and believe it or not? It didn't start with the book of revelation It starts here And if you're going to rightly interpret the scripture, that's what you do do your homework go back in the context Where is this thing called the seven-year tribulation? What's it all about? But let's take a look at that text verse 20 the 77s Here's what he says while I was speaking and praying confessing my sin and the sin of my people israel "...and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, Jerusalem, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. And he instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. And as soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. How many sevens? Seventy. Seventy sevens are decreed for who?" The church? No. Your people and your holy city. To finish transgression, to put an end uh, to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision of prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, no one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed, the Messiah, the ruler comes, there will be how many sevens? Seven sevens and, do the math, add 62. That's a total of 69. Okay, it will be rebuilt with uh, streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And after the 62 sevens with the seven for 69, the anointed one will what? Be cut off and will have nothing. And then the people, the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end will come like a flood. War will continue to the end and desolation has been decreed. He, of course, speaking the context of the Antichrist, this is what starts the seven year tribulation. He will confirm a covenant with many, the context of the Jewish people for what? One seven, okay? And in the middle of that seven, okay, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him, okay? So here we see again the classic passage. If you're not familiar with it, this tells us basically where did it all start. Why do we have a seven-year tribulation in the first place, okay? And specifically, why is it seven? Okay, why is it not a ninety-four, a hundred and thirty-five, or a two-year tribulation? Why is it exactly seven? Here it is, right here in the context. Not the New Testament; it's the Old Testament, the Book of Daniel. This is where it all starts. Okay, and here's what he says: the seven-year tribulation is the final seven, the final seven of the seventy-sevens prophecy given to this Jewish man, Daniel. And here's the purpose: he says, right here in the text, there's going to be a total, a total of seventy-sevens until God basically wraps up history for the Jewish people and fulfills the rest of the promises that he made to them, okay? However, he says there after 69 of the 77s, after 69 have passed, specifically after a decree that goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem from Daniel's time, the anointing when the Messiah will be cut off. And if you do the math, folks, that's exactly when Jesus... The Messiah made his triumphal entry at his first coming, okay? History records for us, we know that date, it was 445 BC when King Artaxerxes issued a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, okay? So if you take the 69 sevens mentioned there, when the Messiah gets cut off, you times it by seven, okay, you get 483 years. Now the Jewish people had what's called a lunar calendar, meaning that their yearly cycle wasn't ours, like 365 Okay, it was 360. So you take that times 360 and you, it, you get the exact day that the Messiah is going to show up and be cut off from his people. And that's 173,880 days after this decree to rebuild Jerusalem goes out. So what happened 173,880 days exactly after that decree went out to rebuild Jerusalem from King Artaxerxes? That's exactly do the math. Uh, I don't think hardly anybody except for a skeptic, a non-Christian skeptic, would argue that's when he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem where the Jewish people accepted him. No, they rejected him. They cut him off just like Daniel said. Okay, but here's the point. That's 69 out of the 70, so what's that leave? There's one seven of the 77s that is left to be fulfilled, and that's the seven-year tribulation, Okay. That's why it's a seven-year tribulation, to finish up this 70th week prophecy. And again, if you look at the text, folks, you'll see that this whole prophecy, the 70th week and and the the final seven, it has nothing to do with the church. And the first way that we see that, folks, is in the verbiage. Just go back to the text, folks, and uh, the church is nowhere to be found. Okay, let's take a look at that. Verse 20, uh, he says, My sin and the sin of my people Israel. Who's talking? Daniel and the people of Israel. Verse 20, my, making my request to the Lord on my God for his holy hill. What's he talking about? Daniel and Jerusalem. Uh, verse 22, Daniel, I have now come to give you. Who's angel Gabriel talking to? Daniel, a Jewish person. Verse 24, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city. Who's he talking about? The Jewish people and Jerusalem. Verse 25, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Again, who's, What's where's the locale? Not in the United States, not... In jerusalem the jewish people verse 26 the people of the ruler who will come and destroy the city and sanctuary again He's talking about jerusalem. Okay, verse 27 the antichrist halfway into the final seven the seven-year tribulation on the wing of a temple He will set up an abomination that causes desolation. Where's that going to happen in a rebuilt jewish temple in jerusalem? That's just looking at the text You don't have to bust into the hebrew and look for something, you know, whatever but as you can see by the verbiage where's the church? Nowhere at all. Nowhere at all. It's all about the Jewish people, Jerusalem, the rebuilt Jewish temple, nothing about the church. So the question is why in the world do people try to squeeze the church into this time frame when contextually, biblically, church isn't around? And in fact, he even specifically said there, I quoted it there for you, he said, The 77s, including the final seven, the seven year tribulation, listen, are decreed for who? Your people, Daniel, not the church. He's talking about the Jewish people. The second reason why the seven-year tribulation has nothing to do with the church is the timing. Okay, the timing issue, not just the verbiage there. And uh, the approximate date for when Daniel wrote this book that contains the 70th week, okay, which includes the seven-year tribulation, okay, the approximate date is between 536 and 530 B.C., okay? So the logical question then, if you're going to do your homework then, where was the church then? Where was the church of Jesus Christ, you and I, the New Testament Christian, where was the church when this book was written that contains this prophecy? The answer rhymes with nowhere. Turn to somebody and say, nowhere. Okay, you're catching on. Okay, nowhere. Why? Because do the math, folks, the church didn't come into existence until Acts chapter 2, which was 570 years later. Okay? Okay. So again, how could Daniel be referring to the church in this passage, dealing with the seven-year tribulation, the final week of the 70 week prophecy, when the church wasn't even in existence yet? He can't. There's a serious stretch. And this is why Paul repeatedly in the New Testament, referring to the church, said it was a mystery and specifically said the Old Testament prophets like Daniel, they didn't have any knowledge of the church. Because the church was a mystery. This is just one of many passages where he says that. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2 through 5. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the what? The mystery made known to me by revelation as I've already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Which was not what? Which was not made known to men in what? other generations that means the old testament as it's now been revealed though by the spirit of god through his holy uh, uh, apostles and prophets this mystery is that through the gospel gentiles are heirs together with israel i.e the church okay that's the mystery members together of one body and shares together in the promise of jesus christ okay and again that's just one of many passages over and over when paul talks about the church being a mystery and it says specifically right there the old testament writers which include daniel guess what I didn't say it. I'm not just making this up because it's convenient for the position that I hold He says they didn't know about it It was a mystery. So here's the question How could daniel be referring to the church in this passage dealing with the seven-year tribulation when the church wasn't in existence yet? Number one and two the bible says he didn't have knowledge of it It was a mystery He can't Okay, and listen just as the church had an abrupt bang beginning appeared on the scene at the conclusion of the 69th week So, the church will have an abrupt removal, okay, at the rapture, shortly beginning of the final 70th week, okay? All makes perfect sense. Just let the Bible speak for itself, okay? The third reason why the seven year tribulation, I believe, has nothing to do with the church is the audience. Okay, the audience. Now, we just saw that uh, in the context of there, Daniel chapter 9, the seventh-week prophecy, the seven-year tribulation, it's dealing with uh, Daniel, the Jewish people, Jerusalem, rebuilt the Jewish temple, not the church, okay? But other passages that speak of this time frame clearly reveal the audience is clearly specifically about the Jewish people, not the church. Let me give you just one of them, okay? And this is in the uh, book of Jeremiah here. We see uh, chapter 30, verse 4 through 7. These are the words the Lord spoke concerning who? So I didn't make this up. Who's defining the context? God. He said this is concerning Israel and Judah. And this is what the Lord says. Cries of fear are heard. Terror, not peace. Ask and see. Can a man bear children? How many guys can testify that would be no? Raise your hand. The rest of you are scaring me. Okay, that no is no. Okay, uh, then, then he says, well, then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Every, every face turned deathly pale. It's like, ah, this is a horrible time. And that's what he says. How awful that day will be. None will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it, God says here. But notice to whom God, the Lord, is speaking about this horrible time frame. It's Israel and the church defined by the context uh, israel and judah defined by the context not the church and this is why god says it's gonna be a time of trouble for Jacob he didn't say it's a time of trouble for the church the seven-year tribulation Daniel's final week of the 70th week prophecy has nothing to do with the church It's jacob's trouble not the church's trouble. the, t- the text there does not say listen. It was a time of paul's doom No, it's peter's demise. No, it's ananias's agony oh. He said it's jacob's trouble not the church's trouble Okay, in Jacob, he's talking about a Jewish name for Jewish people for a Jewish time with a Jewish temple, still worshiping on the Jewish Sabbath, making a deal with the Antichrist, the Jewish nation. It's all about the Jewish people. Now, notice he says that he saves them from it. God always has a remnant. He's not done with the Jewish people. We'll get to that in a little bit. Okay, but the, te- the text here is that God refines Israel. He redeems Israel. Not the church, he's already done that for us. But he refines Israel, he redeems Israel, he fulfills all his promises he made back to Israel back in the time as far as the patriarchs and King David. Okay? If you're saying that God's done with the Jewish people, then you just called God a liar because there are certain promises he made to the Jewish people that have not been fulfilled yet. So he has to still fulfill them, and he does that. Okay, after the seven year uh, tribulation. The Bible says right now the Jewish people are under a temporary blindness, a temporary hardness, if you will. Until the church age or what's called the fullness of the Gentiles uh, comes in. And when that uh, time comes in, okay, the rapture, then Israel becomes God's object of focus again. Because he's not done with them. And this is just one passage where Paul clearly reveals that. And tells us, to, don't get on your high horse, church. Okay, You should be very thankful Okay, for God's program for Israel. Uh, you got grafted in. But he clearly says he's not done with them. Romans 11, verse 25-27. I don't want you to be ignorant of this. Mystery, there's the word again, brothers, so that you may not become conceited. You know, you know, become conceited. Like you hear people today, hey, who cares about Israel? We don't need to pray for Israel. We don't need to be concerned about Israel. We don't need to support Israel. God's done with Israel. You're being conceited. And you're twisting the scripture, by the way, too. Because keep reading. Paul says Israel has experienced a total hardening, a complete hardening. God wrote them off. What's he say? A hardening in part. Sometimes they say blindness in part. Until what? Until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so what's going to happen after that? So all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will turn godlessness away from, there's that name again, Jacob. Okay, And this is my covenant, God says, with them when I take away their sins. So the Bible's clear, folks, that's just one passage. God is not done with the Jewish people. Right now, he's clear. Right now, they're under a temporary hardness or blindness. But when the church departs at the rapture, okay, God will once again deliver them and fulfill his covenant he made with them. Okay, now here's my point. The seven-year tribulation is the instrument he does to get the job done. It's all about Israel, not the church, uh, period. Okay, it has nothing to do with church. And aren't you glad that God is going to keep his promises to the church? Absolutely. As Brian rightly stated today from the book of Romans in Sunday school, uh, that means we can trust him when he promises to save us eternally. Amen? Because if he's not going to keep his promise with them, a little sketchy for us, but praise God, he keeps his promise. Now, the second way we know the church is raptured prior to the seven-year tribulation is the promise of no wrath. Okay? Okay. No wrath specifically for the church, okay? Now, if there's one promise in the Bible that's very clear, folks, uh, to me, it's got to be this one, okay? And this is a a very important distinction to make because some people who disagree, with all due respect, with the pre-trib position, they'll say something like this, oh, wait, oh, okay, okay, fine, fine, okay, I get you, okay? Uh, The Bible says, though, I got a problem with this. The Bible says that Christians are guaranteed tribulation, okay? So how can you say they won't be in the seven-year tribulation? You ever heard of that? Well, that's actually pretty easy because the seven-year tribulation is not the same thing as general tribulation. Okay, Yes, we the church, the Bible is very clear about this, even Jesus. Hello, we are promised general trials, general tribulation, general persecution. But the seven-year tribulation is not general tribulation. Okay, It is a specific outpouring of God's wrath on this wicked and rebellious planet. In fact, the word tribulation and wrath, it's two totally different Greek words okay general tribulation that we are promised okay no disagreement there is the greek word thlipsis. okay and it refers to pressure or oppression affliction distress troubles trial and, and and we're guaranteed that no disagreement but wrath wrath is the greek word orge and it means anger violent emotion indignation and folks the scripture is very clear praise god we've been rescued from that okay uh, we, we are we are a promise general philipsis general uh, persecution tribulation. No disagreement, but we are never Never the church is never promised to be under god's wrath or his orge Jesus set us free from that. In fact, it's even mentioned in the context of the chapters dealing with the rapture Okay, let's take a look at just a couple of passages romans chapter 5 verse 8 through 9 But god demonstrates his own love for us in this the church while we were still sinners. What happened? Christ died for us. Now watch one of the many, 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 many benefits of that. Here you go. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's what? Wrath through him. We're saved from that. First Thessalonians 1 and 10. Again, these are the chapters, the context here dealing with the rapture. Okay, passages. First Thessalonians 1 and 10. And we wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from what? Not just wrath, but the coming wrath. Okay, he's not just talking about hell there first Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 9 through 11 for god did not appoint us church to suffer Wrath but to receive salvation through our lord jesus christ He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep. We may live together with him. Therefore what listen Encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing the scripture states that while, yes, we, the church, may experience thalipsis, general persecution on earth here today, no disagreement with her, but the good news is we are promised we will never experience God's wrath, his orgate, including the time of the, his wrath being poured out on the seven-year tribulation. This is why Paul ends that passage there specifically. Hey, rejoice. Hey, encourage one another with these words. Why? Because hello, it's common sense. Being saved from God's wrath, being rescued from the seven-year tribulation, not just hell, thats something to get excited over, right? I mean, have you seen what's going on in that time frame? It's horrible. And and by the way, the other positions, you've got a serious problem with Paul's word of encouragement to encourage one another and rejoice. Because think about it, in the context, if I'm going to have to suffer God's wrath, as some position state. With all due respect, for three and a half years, or five and a half years, or all the seven years of the seven-year tribulation, as the mid-trib, pre-wrath, and post-trib position say, what in the world is so comforting about that? woo I'm going into the worst time in the history of mankind! Woo! I can't do that. <laughs> the good news, I don't have to do that. Because the scripture is clear. With all due respect, to use the words, this is hell on earth. This is a time of literally hell on earth. Demons are going to be everywhere. Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet. This is the worst time in the history of mankind, Jesus. How can I rejoice? How can I encourage you? Yeah. If we were going to be in that time frame. The command to encourage and rejoice makes no sense unless you're saved. You're not appointed unto. You're rescued, as the scripture says, from God's wrath including the seven-year tribulation. One guy puts it this way. This is cool. He says, believers in every uh, generation have faced trouble. Some have faced terrible persecution, even martyrdom. Jesus told him uh, to his disciples himself, he says, in the world you will have tribulation, John 16. Paul says in Acts 14, he says, through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. He says, let it be clear that I do not believe that Christians are somehow exempt from the troubles in life, even serious trouble. A, a cursory reading of the Bible shows this. True believers get ill, they have family problems, they they deal with emotional stress, they face persecution, they lose their jobs, they die. We live in a fallen, sin-cursed creation, but there is a vast difference between the troubles and trials and tribulations of this life that we all face and the wrath of God poured out on the godless, sinful planet in the final years of this age. It's the difference between tribulation with a little t and tribulation with a capital T, okay? Now, don't pay attention to my hand gesture there, because I think I just did the letter I. I did one, <laughs> one, two. Please don't get distracted. And remember the point. <laughs> but again, you'll have some people say, that's the good news, but you'll have some people, okay, okay I, get, I get you, because the scripture is clear. You can't get around that one. I mean, over and over again, the scripture is, the church is not appointed. We are saved, we are rescued from God's wrath, right? But they still want to squeeze the church in there, okay, in that time frame, the seven-year tribulation. So they'll sit there, they'll say this, well... Case solved. I can still have the church in there. Because they say the seven-year tribulation is not a full seven years of his wrath. Only part of it is. No, that's not what the Bible says. Uh, Let's take a look at what the scripture says about that time frame. A full seven years of his wrath. This is at the very beginning, the seal judgments. Jesus is opening them up. Revelation 6, 1 through 12. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse, its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown and rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest, okay? Right from the very beginning of the seven-year tribulation, folks, the Lamb, Jesus, God, is opening the seals from his throne, and he's the one giving the order for judgment to begin. This is coming from Jesus. It's his command. It's his order from his throne room. This is at the very beginning, Okay, of the seven-year tribulation. It's not coming from man. This is not man's wrath. This is not Satan's wrath. This is coming from God himself at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. To say it's man or Satan, I'm sorry, that's an abomination, I believe. God is the one giving the order for his wrath to begin, and it continues all the way to the very end of the seven-year tribulation. Revelation chapter 6. This is still in the first half. Okay, of the seven-year tribulation 16 through 17 they called on the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him Who sits on the throne and from the what the wrath of the lamb The the great day of the wrath has come who can stand this is in the first half Oh, and by the way, a couple of interesting things, even prior to this passage, still in the first half, he talks about the judgments of the sword, the famine, the plague and the wild beast. If you look at the old Testament and the prophets, those judgments are judgments specifically coming from God. He uses the same verbiage. So that's another passage really that you could bring up. Also the Greek word there has come. It doesn't mean it started right then. It's eros in the tense. If you know Greek and it's speaking of a past event, they're just now acknowledging that, but it's already been there going on since the very beginning of opening the seals and he goes on revelation eleven eighteen. 18 the nations were angry and you're what your wrath your wrath has come revelation 14 10 he too will drink of the wine of god's fury which has been poured out in full strength in the cup of his wrath revelation 14 19 the angel swung his sickle on the earth gathered its grapes and threw them into the great wine press of god's wrath revelation 15 1 i saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign seven angels seven last plagues. last because them god's wrath is what just beginning just start, no, it's completed. It's been going on this whole time all the way to the end. Revelation fifteen seven. then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Revelation 16, 1, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying, go to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Revelation 16, 9, the great city split into three parts. The cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her cup filled with the wine of the fury of his what? Wrath. Now, just take a look at the scripture. How many of you guys would say seven-year tribulation, first half, second half, beginning in kind of mm, it's all God's wrath? It's all horrible, absolutely, and it's all God's wrath. Okay? All 19 judgments mentioned in the book of Revelation, from chapter 16 through 18, 19 is the second coming of Jesus Christ. We come back with him. Okay, they're all dealing with God's wrath, not just some of it, not just part of it, all of it. The sealed judgments, which happens at the beginning. Okay, they're brought forth by the command of jesus jesus is the one given the order not man not satan Okay, and and therefore you think about this That means then the pre-trib position with all due respect Is the only position that agrees With the scripture about god's wrath being the whole seven years Right Okay, and I want to side with the scripture personally one guy puts it this way. This is cool He said most americans are well aware of what happened on december 7th 1941 Right, it was a day that will live in infamy Okay, The Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, inflicting heavy casualties on the U.S. Navy and crippling the Pacific Fleet. And most people also know what happened on December 8, 1941, the next day, President Roosevelt called on Congress to make a formal declaration of war against Japan and its Axis powers of Germany and Italy, right? He said, however, what most people don't know is what happened on the next day, December 9, 1941, President Roosevelt issued an order to call all the U.S. ambassadors home from Japan, Germany, and Italy. Why? Listen, because before he unleashed the full wrath of the American military machine on those nations, he wanted to make sure that no American civilians were in harm's way. Listen, the wrath of America was for her enemies, not her own people. And in the same way, before God declares war on this godless world beginning at the seven-year tribulation and unleashes his unmitigated wrath, he will call his ambassadors home The church, because his wrath is not appointed for the citizens of his kingdom. It's appointed to this world. Same thing that we see there. And again, aren't you glad that God keeps his promises to you and I to save us from his wrath? Okay. The third way we know the church is raptured, I believe, prior to the seven-year tribulation, is a flat-out promise to be removed from that time frame. Now, I'm not just making this up out of convenience. This is the promise that Jesus made to the church of Philadelphia... That they would be escaping the seven-year tribulation, that specific hour of trial. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Since you have came, Jesus speaking, to the church, church of Philadelphia, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from what? The hour of trial that's going to come upon locally, just around your area, just at that time frame. No, the whole world to test the church. No, to test those who live on the earth okay and so here we see jesus promising these faithful christians in philadelphia one of two that got positive words from jesus the rest of them not good by and large okay but he says that basically although they have done a great job they've had it rough here on earth for a a while defending him standing up for him not giving up just like we got to deal with today right standing up for jesus Okay? He says, though, I'm going to promise you something really good. He says, I will nonetheless keep you or spare you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth, i.e., I believe clearly, the seven-year tribulation. Now let me break it down for you. First of all, notice the distinction there between the two different groups of people. Right? There's two different groups of people mentioned in this text. It cannot be one and the same. The church that gets uh, kept from the trial that's coming upon the whole world and those who get tested... While still on the earth, right? Can we agree there's two groups of people being mentioned here? Okay, in the context. They cannot be one and the same. Okay, and again, how do you get kept from that whole global trial coming on the pl- As one guy says, what's that if not the rapture? Right? You'll be kept from it if you're in that generation, i.e. the church. Okay. Also notice the phrase there, the hour of trial. Okay, not just hour of trial, the hour of trial. It's the Greek word hora perasmas, and it means a time of testing, a season of testing. And it's not specifically one literal hour. It's talking about a period, a season of time when we, the church, who are not on the earth, okay, those left on the earth will be tested. Okay, third, notice the context there, the whole world, it's the whole world, okay? This period of testing that's gonna come It's going to come to the whole planet at the same time. This cannot be speaking of some localized event in Philadelphia. It can't be talking about, well, it's just an earthquake. You guys can't see it, but I'm God. I know everything. There's going to be this local horrible thing, this earthquake, or some other atrocity, or there's going to be more persecution locally uh, coming your way uh, that I'm going to spare you. It's not that. It's not a local event. It's a global event that affects the whole world, and not just for an hour or some short period of time, but literally a sustained period of time, and extended season. Now, if that's not the seven-year tribulation, I don't know what is. Okay, it cannot be some local thing. Okay, the period of testing that affects the whole world Those who remain on the earth it lasts for a period of time that of seven years Okay now even stronger the promise here to the church is not an exemption from general trials Because philadelphia was already undergoing trials. Okay, and again as we saw earlier We're promised in the scripture. What are we going to have to endure? General trial. So it can't be that. It's an exemption from the seven-year time period, the seven-year tribulation that's coming up across the whole world. And you think about it, it has to be that. It has to be that because flip it around. If it just meant some local trial, and these guys are standing up for Jesus like you and I today, they're experiencing some serious persecution. They're hanging on, being faithful to Christ. And so here's, here's is this their great promise from Jesus? Hey, Hey, guys, I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Church, you're on the ball. Right, you're going through a general trial now, but here's what I'm gonna do I'm gonna reward your faithfulness by keeping you from one general trial in the future. Yeah! I can, that's it. That... what? Because flip it around if it doesn't mean the seven year tribulation, folks, that's it. I think Jesus can do much better promises than that, right? And he does, okay. We are never under his wrath. We are not going to endure the worst time nonstop, hell on earth, the seven-year tribulation. That's what he's talking about. Now, fourth, notice that it's a complete removal, completely taking out this period of time, okay? And that's important because you'll have some people say, oh, no, 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 we see the church in the seven-year tribulation, okay, but here's what God does. He preserves them through it. What? No, you read the scripture and those people are being killed, In fact, they're being slaughtered like flies. There's no preservation going on here of those people at that time. Revelation 7, 9, 13 through 15. Here's just one passage. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where do they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he says, these are they who have come out of the... Great tribulation, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So much for being preserved. They're being martyred, they're being slaughtered like flies. Now, I'm going to get into this in great detail in a second. These are referring to the tribulation saints... Okay, those who get saved after the rapture because people can still get saved during the seven year tribulation We see that witness going out from the hundred and forty four thousand jewish male evangelists We see that with the two witnesses revelation chapter 11 and the angel that goes forth in the sky and declares the gospel And dare I say not saying thus saith the lord anything you and I might leave behind common sense Okay, but the gospel still goes forth. God demonstrates his mercy even in the midst of his judgment Okay, but these people are not being preserved there's no preservation going on. They're being slaughtered, okay? And that's why the phrase in Revelation 3.10, to keep you from, it's an explicit term. You can't get around this. In the Greek, it's the phrase there, tereo ek, and it means keeping you out, keeping you separate out of this completely, okay? And in fact, let me give you some analogies of what Jesus' has promises in here. He's not saying, I'm going to put you in it and somehow protect you, because there is no protection going on to these people. They're getting slaughtered. Okay. He says, I'm going to completely take you out of the whole thing. That's what makes the promise so wonderful. But let me give you some examples of what Toreo Ek in the Greek literally means, to be kept from. Okay. First of all, there's the war removal. Let's go back to World War II. It was a time of trial and trouble for the world, obviously. And so suppose you lived on the earth prior to this great war before it bust out. And somebody gave you this promise, right? You'll be kept from the trial of World War II. Now, that means you would not face any of the bullets or bombs or battles of the war. Uh, maybe you could be located in a part of the world that did not directly involve the conflict. Uh, you could still be in the world, but protected from the war, right? But that's not what he's talking about. Suppose you were given this promise. You'll be kept from the time of World War II, like what Revelation 3.10 says. For this to be fulfilled, you could not be on earth during the entire period of years from 1941 to 1945. To be exempt from the time is to be absent from the time when the event takes place, right? Right? You can't be around. It's not just being sheltered in a section of the world. Okay, number one, number two. How about a test? Right. Let's suppose that uh, we announce that an exam will occur on such and such day at a regular class time. Suppose the teacher says this: I want to make a promise to the students whose grade average for the semester so far is an A. Right. And here's the promise: I will keep you from the exam. That's the promise. Right now. You can keep the promise to those A students this way. I would tell them to come to the exam, pass out the exam to everyone, and give the A students the sheet containing the answers. Okay? They would take the exam, and yet in reality be kept from the exam. They would live through the time of the exam, but not suffer the trial of the exam. That's post-trib position. Somehow you'll be preserved in that. That's not what he's saying though. But if I said to the class, I'm giving you an exam next week, I want to make a promise to the A students, I will keep you from the hour of the exam." And that's what Revelation 3.10 talks about. This, they would understand clearly, to be exempt from the hour of the test means you are not present during that whole hour, right? That's what that's pre-trib. And that's the meaning of Revelation 3.10. We will be kept from the hour of testing. Nowhere around, period. Let me give you a couple other quick ones. To be kept out of jail means the person will what? Be preserved behind bars. No, you're not going there in the first place, right? Okay. Uh, To be kept out of the swimming pool means, guess what? You ain't even getting wet. Okay, to be kept out of the army means the person was not allowed in the army and thus they were exempt from serving in the army weren't in there at all to be kept out of the entire ball game a basketball player means you didn't get any action at all You didn't play nothing period. Okay, you weren't even on the sidelines See a person if they sit on the property says keep out Okay, does that means he's going to build you a little hut and he's going to preserve you in the midst of it Even though he said keep out No, he doesn't want you on his property at all. He doesn't want your presence there, period. Okay? Moses, the Bible says, was kept out of the promised land. He didn't enter at all, right? He didn't get to go in there, period. Okay? And to be kept out of the hour of trial that will come upon the whole world means the person will not enter that time at all. Will be completely exempt from that time, which means you will not be present on earth at that time since that time frame is clearly dealing with a total global event. You cannot be there on the earth that's the promise from jesus to the church us okay and i think that again aren't you glad that he keeps his promises okay the fourth and final way man there's so much more but this so we're gonna have to wrap it up the fourth way we know that the church is i believe rapture prior to the seven-year tribulation is the proof of total absence not just total removal uh there's proof of total absence okay and i think a little bit of this is common sense okay you'd think that if Okay, if the church really was going to be thrust into this worst time, hell on earth, with all due respect, the worst time in the history of mankind, according to Jesus, as some would say, then you would think you'd find the church being mentioned in that time frame at least a couple times, right? The problem is, you don't. There is a total, complete absence of the church again supporting the pretrib position, and the first way we see that is from the omission of the word church. You know, the word that refers to you and I. Okay. And again, you would think that if we are appointed into the seven year tribulation, then during that time frame that the book of Revelation talks about, the judgments 6 through uh, 18 and 19 there, okay, that you'd find the word church mentioned. It's not at all, okay? The church is repeatedly mentioned in chapters 1 through 3, okay, prior to the seven year tribulation, but after that, they're not mentioned at all, okay? In fact, let me give you uh, a uh, uh, an, uh, visual. Of what is going on when you take a look at what's going on in the book of Revelation with the church, okay? The word church. Revelation 1 through 3, the word church appears 19 times. 19 times. Right? Why? Because it's all about the church, applicable to the church. Here's church, what you need to deal with. Here's what you need to focus on. Church, 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 church. But then all of a sudden, you go from 4 to 19, dealing with 6 to 19. The passage is there. 4 and 5 is the throne room scene. But how many times does the word church appear? Zero. Nothing. Nada. Isn't that strange? 19 to nothing. Right? And then it only appears one more time at the end after the seven year tribulation when you're dealing with the millennial kingdom and the final state, the church. But that's not during the seven year tribulation. That's it. Okay? So you look at the facts. I mean, if the church was going to experience any or all of the horrible seven year tribulation, you'd think we'd be mentioned there at least once, but we're not, not even once. Okay? Anybody find that strange? It's almost like the reason why the word church is absent is because the church is absent interesting okay that's what we see in the bible now now you'll have those that say well okay yeah okay i i i, I get i get that okay but uh, uh I, I i still see they say the church not the word church because that's not there but they'll say oh i still see uh, the church in the seven year tribulation and what they do is they pull out another word it's not the word church but they pull out this word and they say the word saint right because you see there it says saint and these saints are, you know, the Antichrist overcomes them, and, and saints there, and they get martyred and stuff. That's got to be the church. No. No. That's not how it works when you rightly interpret the scripture. First of all, the word saint in the Bible, it's hagias, It simply means holy one. And when you look at the scripture, Old and New Testaments, you'll see there's many different kinds of people in the Bible mentioned as a saint. Church is a specific word. Saint, It's not. Okay, there's Old Testament saints, there's New Testament saints, there's future tribulation saints, there's saints in the millennial kingdom. So just because you see the word saint doesn't mean that it's referring to the church. So how do you decipher who it is? Context, right? What does it say in uh, real estate? What's the three most important things in real estate? Location, location, location. I hope that's not the only thing you get from my sermon today. Hey, did you guys know that real estate is... <laughs> <laughs> right? It's the same thing when it comes to proper biblical interpretation, right? Context, context, context you don't want to get it wrong, pay attention to context. So let's take a, a look at this word saint, and uh, let's see who does it really contextually apply to. Right? Now, before we get into that, let me show you how this is nothing new. This is not some secret technique, just to skirt the issue and make it sound like... It's common sense. I'm going to give you an example from one English word, just like saint's an English word. I'm going to use another word it's called cool. Cool. And I'm going to use cool, three different cool ways. With a cool attitude, right? Okay. And it's spelled the exact same way, all three occurrences, but you tell me if it means the same thing. Let's take a look at these examples. What if I said, hey, wow, hey, that outfit you have on is cool, Bobby. Yeah, I'm here for you. That's right. Or I could say, hey, hey, Bobby, is everything okay? Your, your, your attitude towards me is kind of cool. I mean, I just gave you a compliment on your outfit. What's going on? Right? Or you know, I could say, hey, obviously not here in Vegas. Uh, the weather outside is cool, Right? Now, here's my whole point in bringing up this easy example, okay? All three times, the word cool was expelled the exact same way, right? It had even the exact same letters, okay? But every single one of them, common sense is they had a totally different meaning, right? Okay? That's the point. What determined the meaning was the context it occurred in. And folks, this is not some secret escapist technique to get around this saint issue. It's the same thing with the word saint. You have to determine it by its context, is it an Old Testament saint? Is it a New Testament saint? Is it a tribulation saint? Is it a millennial saint? Context determines the meaning. So let's do that, okay? Let's put it in context. It cannot be referring to an Old Testament saint, okay, because that time is already passed. It cannot be referring to a millennial kingdom saint because that's after the seven-year tribulation, and that is still yet in the future. And I believe it cannot be referring to the you and I, the New Testament church age saint, because there's strong evidence we've already seen that the church is gone uh, at the rapture prior to the seven-year tribulation. And so that leaves one final option. The passages in the judgments in the seven-year tribulation that mention saint is referring to the tribulation saints, those who made the biggest mistake of their life. You should have got saved before it started and left at the rapture. But God's merciful. His gospel still goes forth. But most of you are going to be slaughtered. There's no protection. You're going to be slaughtered like flies. Revelation even says for those people, a lot of them, their heads are going to be chopped off. Which I tell people today, they say, oh, well, if that's the case, and if I see you Christians getting raptured, okay, I'll know that it was true, then I'll accept Jesus and my Savior then. <laughs> now, let's think about that logically. You won't accept Jesus now when your head's literally not on the chopping block, but you really think and there's hardly any persecution, at least now, but you really think you will, and the worst time in man's kind, and your head is on don't kid yourself. Get saved now, avoid the whole thing. Okay? Make sure that you're a New Testament saint not a tribulation saint. Okay? The second way we see the absence of the church in the seven-year tribulation is the identity of the 24 elders. Now, I said all that. The church is absent. The word church is not absent. I don't believe that you can say that the saint word is being applicable to the church, but we do happen to see a group of people mentioned in heaven during the seven-year tribulation uh, as it unfolds on the earth, and that group is what's called the 24 elders. Okay. Let's take a look at just one of those passages there. Revelation chapter 4, prior to the seven-year tribulation, the throne room scene, you see a group of people in heaven, okay? Revelation 4.4, 4. surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. Notice the attributes here. They were dressed in white and they had crowns of gold on their heads, Okay. And so, again, the 24 elders, are also mentioned, if you want to do the homework, in uh, Revelation chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 11, and chapter 14, okay? And in every single occurrence, their location is already in heaven. So that's there. There. that's who they are. So the natural question is, well, who in the world is the 24 elders? I think when you do the homework, it's clearly the church, okay? The reason why you see the 24 elders in heaven, okay, during the seven-year tribulation, is because that's where the church goes. Okay, but let me break it down for you. And the first evidence I think you're speaking of the church is the crown issue. Okay? Is the crown issue. When it comes to crowns, crowns are not given to angels. Okay? Crowns are given to the church. And this is just one of the promises, 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 8. Now, there Paul says is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have what? Who have Can you believe this? Who have longed for his appearing. Did you realize, man? This one is like, everybody should get this crown as a Christian, right? Does anybody long for his appearing? (laughs) Guess what? You get a crown for that. Isn't that wild? Right? We get a crown to lay at his feet, Revelation chapter 4. It's awesome. If you just long for his appearing, Come on, we should all be able to uh, do that one. But crowns are never promised to angels. Angels are never seen wearing crowns, yet the Bible is clear repeatedly over and over and over again. There's five different types of crowns that a uh, New Testament Christian uh, could earn to have the privilege to lay at Jesus' feet. It's not that we get to heaven, we sit there and go, hey, my crown's bigger than your crown. Hey, I've got more than you. Too bad, Bobby. Hey, la, la, la. Oh, hey, don't want to jostle them. no. Jesus gives us the ability to earn a crown, and we have the privilege when we get to heaven, lay him at his feet. Right? I don't know about you, but I don't want to get there empty-handed. All i got to do is long for my least get one. And I hope we all are longing for his appearing. Okay, but again, this is clearly speaking the church. That's why uh, I think that it's clearly dealing with that, okay? And also the Old Testament believers, I don't believe it's referring to them because they're not going to be resurrected and rewarded until after the seven-year tribulation, so it only leaves the church. The second is the word uh, "elder." There, it's the title, okay, of all things to call these the twenty-four. Oh, hey, if that's the pizza, tell them in fifteen minutes we'll be ready for it. Uh, uh, but <laughs> the word title there is the word "elder." Okay, "elder" is the Greek word presbyteros, Okay, and it just happens to be a New Testament word that refers to the church. Okay, let's take a look at just one example uh, from Peter, 1 Peter chapter five, verse one, to the elders and he's speaking to the church and he's a part of the church to the elders I appeal to you as a fellow elder a witness of Christ's suffering and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed elders the Greek word presbyteros is where we get the English word presbyterian from okay it's clearly a church word term that's used for church leadership etc 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 by the way the Bible is never addressed or mentioned as elders but the church is the elder, the term is applied to human beings, not angelic beings, okay? Okay, you always have to say that word slow, Bobby, because sometimes it sounds like you're saying jelly beans. No, I said angelic beans. Just wanted to clarify that. Learn that lesson. Uh, hopefully I did. But anyway, the third evidence is the position, the position of the 24 elders. Now, notice how these guys are positioned in the Bible. I'm not making this up for convenience sake. They, they're not sitting on a couch, not a day bed, not even a lazy boy, as cool as that is. Okay, of all things for these guys to be seated on, it's on thrones. Now, it just so happens that's a promise from Jesus to the church, that you get seated on a throne with him. Revelation three twenty one. to him, speaking of the church, to him who overcomes, Jesus said, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Thrones. So again, another promise from Jesus, the elders get to sit in the same position as thrones uh, and thrones are promised to the church. I'm thinking this one and the same. The fourth evidence is the distinction. Okay. And, 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 again, some people, they have different theories of who they say the 24 elders is. I think it's clearly the church. Uh, they keep throwing out the angels in Israel and I've heard all kinds of other different theories, which I don't think fly at all contextually. Okay. But back to the angel issue, how people could, with all due respect, how they could say that the 24 elders is referring to angels is beyond me because in the exact same passage that mentions elder, uh, angels, it shows them surrounding the 24 elders. Yeah. So, how could you be the 24 elders if there's.? But well, let's take a look at that passage. I'm not making this up. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many what? Angels, tons of them, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands on ten thousand, and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the who? The elders. Well, how could the angels be the elders when they're encircling the elders? That's a pretty good technique. I wish I could do that. I'd get a lot more work done being in two places at the same time. But that's not reality. Okay? The fifth evidence is the redemption. Okay? Now, if there's one thing clear in the Scripture, Jesus died for people, not angels. Can we agree on that one? Okay. And he gave his life to purchase to redeem human beings to himself, not the, again, angelic beings. you got to be careful. Okay, And guess what? That just so happens to be how the 24 elders uh, describe themselves. In fact, they sing a song about it, a song of redemption. Let's take a look at that passage real quick, Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seal, speaking obviously of Jesus, because you were slain, Jesus, and with your blood you what? You purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is the song that the 24 elders are singing Okay, purchasing, redeeming people is clearly a word used for the salvation of the church, not angels. Again, I think elders in church are one of the same. One more, there's tons more, but we got to wrap it up. The sixth evidence is the clothing issue. Okay, the clothing that is mentioned here. Now, if you look at the clothing mentioned by the 24 elders, uh, it's the same clothing of the church. Go figure. Dressed in white, and that's the same clothing that's promised to you and I, the New, age, uh, new uh, Testament uh, age saints. Uh, Revelation chapter three, verse five. He who overcomes, speaking to the church from Jesus, he who overcomes like them will be dressed in white. I will never, wow, love this verse. I will never blot out his name from the book of life. Isn't that a great promise from Jesus? He will never do that. Did you know there's actually, I don't wanna to get too sidetracked, we gotta get going. Did you know there's actually people that would take this promise from Jesus and turn it into a curse? Now, how many guys would say that never means never? And if Jesus said he'll never do it, he'll never do it. But people say, well, he said he'll never blot out their name from the book of life, so that means he could if he wanted to. What? He just said he'd never do it. Anyway, that's for a whole another sermon. But anyway, I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but I will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Now, here's another one, Revelation four four. That's the church, right? In Revelation 3, can we agree they're dressed in white? Revelation 4.4, 4. again, go back to the passage, dealing with the 24 elders. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders, and they were dressed in white and, again, had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, Revelation 19, this is coming back with Jesus at a second coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Listen to what the church, the bride, has on. His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. So you put it all together. you got before the seven-year tribulation, you got in heaven during the seven-year tribulation, and then you got coming back with Jesus at the end of the seven-year tribulation. White garments, bright and clean, before the rapture, up in heaven during the seven-year tribulation, coming back with... You think it's because they're one and the same? I think so. Okay? There's no way that's by chance, okay? This clothing issue also, though, helps to uh, prove that the tribulation saints cannot be their church, Okay? Now, listen to this. This is really cool, okay? Uh, Not only do we see the same clothing before with the rapture of the church, rapture up in heaven, 24 elders, white come down, bright and clean, the bride coming back. But listen to this. Those that would still say that the saints, if you didn't like my cool analogy, is referring to the church, it cannot be the same people because they're wearing different clothes in the church. Listen to this. The 24 elders, okay, as the church, okay, they get to wear a certain garment, Okay? The uh, other ones, the tribulation saints, they wear something different. Now, the martyrs, the tribulation saints that we saw in that passage there, they got a white robe on to say, oh, see, it's a church. No, do your homework, with all due respect. It's stole in the Greek, okay? Now, the 24 elders, the garments mentioned on those guys, their clothing, it's a white linen raiment of the priesthood. It's a different word. It's hymation in the Greek. Totally different word. And the Bible says, Peter, I believe, he says that the church, we are a royal priesthood. God. God gives us priestly clothes. Okay? But either way, you can't say that those identities are the same because they have two totally different types of garments on. Okay? It cannot be the same thing. Okay? And I think it's pretty clear. You got two totally different garments for two totally different groups of people. Those who get saved now, okay, us today, before the seven year tribulation, the church, and those who procrastinate and get saved later during the seven year tribulation. They're not one and the same. And so ultimately, that's really the issue. And Jesus gives analogies. Uh, in the Gospels. okay, It's a clothing issue. Remember the analogy that he's talking to the Jewish people and he talks about you got to have the right clothes on? Okay, It's a clothing issue. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, get the right clothes on. You need to get a new outfit on real fast. You need to get, uh, you need to get the high nation. You need to go to the cross of Jesus Christ because that's the only place you can get it. You, you can't get it at Walmart. Not even Target. right? The high robe only comes right there. He will give you a robe of righteousness, a priestly robe, and you become a part of his church. That's the only place you can get it. It's a free gift. He wants to give it to you, but he's not going to make you. You need to say, yes, I need that robe of righteousness before it's too late. Otherwise, you will be left behind. and you don't want that. Church, if you're here today and you're a Christian, obviously it's time to get excited, and it's time to get busy. Man, we're, we might very well be in that generation, right? In that generation when we get to see, and we're longing for his appearing, let's, let's, let's get out of here on a good note. How do you want him to find us? Goofing off? Living worldly? Or maybe the fullness of the Gentiles, maybe he's going to have, maybe it'll happen at an altar call at Sunrise Baptist Church in, of all places, Las Vegas, Sin City. Wouldn't that be funny? And that last person that only God knows comes forward, receives Christ as Savior. Woo! Bang! Rapture happens, we're out of here. Wouldn't that be awesome? Now, can I tell you, he is coming back, and it very well could be today. So he is going to find you doing something. What's it going to be? So we need to get motivated, Okay. The rapture is imminent. Let's not be found goofing off, but sharing the gospel. Amen? We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. But maybe uh, Jesus is, uh, maybe he's already headed this way. Don't know. Could be, right? Which means we could be going home real soon. Maybe it'll look something like this. As Paul says, rejoice. Encourage comfort one another with this. We'll close in prayer after this. I hear a sound of a mighty rushing wind and it's closer now than it's ever I can almost hear the trumpet Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today that you go to heaven and not hell? Now, before you answer that, let me uh, share with you a couple of things that the Bible says. The Bible says that God is holy and that we are not. And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death. We don't deserve to go to heaven when we die. We deserve to go down. We deserve to go to hell. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this problem that we have, that we're separated from God not only now, but we're going to be separated from Him for all eternity in a place called hell. We we, we don't even want to admit that. So, once again, out of love, God gives us what's called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were God's x-ray, if you will, divine x-ray, to to get us to admit the problem that we have inside that's separating us from Him. Let's take a look at a few of those of God's divine x-ray. For instance, if you think that you're worthy on your own, you don't need a Savior, uh, you're going to get to heaven all by yourself, then let's take a look at God's test there. Uh, The the Ten Commandments. The ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. Uh, How many of you have ever told a lie before? Raise your hand. Okay. Uh, If you didn't raise your hand, you just told one. But folks, we've all done that. That makes us a liar. The Ten Commandments, God's x-ray, showing us that we have sin that's separating us from Him. We're not holy and perfect like Him. The fifth commandment says this, you shall not steal. Don't ever once take anything without permission. How many of you ever done that? Well, if we're not going to tell another lie, we, we should all admit that as well. Well, that makes us a thief now. The Bible says that God is so holy, uh, even His name is holy. And that's why the ten commandments says you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And if we're honest again, folks, hey, a lot of us, how many of us have used the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the only name the Bible says under heaven, that men might be saved? We've now turned it into a common cuss word, if you can believe that. The Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy. The Bible also says, hey, show, you want to show God you're so perfect, you have no sin? Then don't ever once commit adultery. And you might say, well, I, I've never done that, really? Jesus lays the standard before us. God looks at the heart. Man looks on the outside. Jesus said, if you ever looked with lust in your eye at another person, you've committed adultery in your heart. That's His holy standard. One more, the Bible says, "Okay, you think you're so good, Uh, then don't ever once commit murder. You shall not murder." And you might say, "Well, hey, at least I haven't done that one." Really, the Bible again says that the sin of hatred, wishing someone was uh, dead, is akin to the sin of murder. It's just if you will, you pull the trigger in your heart. So, 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 how are you doing? That's just five out of ten of God's divine X-ray, by the way, uh, showing us the problem. How are you doing? Not if, but when your time comes, we're all going to stand before God. You will be forced to admit what he already knows. Hey, God, let me in. Let me in. I'm I'm a a liar. I'm a a thief. I'm a, a, a blasphemer, an adulterer, and a murderer. And the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You're not headed to heaven. In that state, you're headed to hell. But here's the good news. God said if we would just admit this. Number one, then he could fix it. And it gets fixed only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the life, and the truth, and nobody comes to the Father but by me. Why? Because only Jesus lived the perfect life in our place. And Jesus died on the cross. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be set free. And since we weren't there, and since it's a gift and we can't earn it, we have to receive that wonderful gift by faith. And the Bible says God will pardon us for our crimes, our sins against him. And you can actually see this analogy working uh, in the natural, in the normal world. Uh, We see this actually uh, in the courtroom. For instance, if a person is guilty and, and everybody knows they're guilty, they've committed a horrible crime and, and, and the, the sentence has passed, the judge has knocked down the gavel and says, hey, uh, you are going to jail. You are going to the death penalty for that crime. And, and we know that people, that happens all the time and they go to jail. But believe it or not, did you know there's a way for that person, even though they're guilty, to actually be set free from that crime? It's called a pardon. And the one in authority, the governor has the part out of mercy, out of goodness, certainly nothing that that person did in jail. They can't undo the crime. It's too late. But out of mercy, the governor could go down there and grant that person in jail a full pardon for their crimes. And by receiving that pardon, the doors come open and they are set free and they're rescued from the death penalty. Folks, that's what God is doing every single day with us spiritually. He has allowed His Son, Jesus Christ, to take the death penalty in our place. He's pardoned us, but a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it. And it's actually been on historical record that there have been people on death road who a governor has gone down out of mercy and extended to them a full pardon, but they've rejected it. And by their own doing, they went to the death penalty. Folks, don't make that same mistake For all eternity. God loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done. All of it. Even the sins we don't even know about. He wants to pardon you. And forgive you. But you must receive that by faith today. The Bible says if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you call upon his name. Ask him to forgive you of all your sins. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave. You will be saved. Please do that now. Please do that today. Because tomorrow may be too late. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Get a Life Ministries. Again, thank you for joining us. If there's anything that you need, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact us. Our information and number and uh, things will uh, pop up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.